Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study about your holiness today. We ask that your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, will be here with us to enlighten our mind and we can come into a unity of love and, and affection for each other as we love you and love each other. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing uh, lesson number five in our quarterly, Glimpses of Our God, and the title this week is The Holiness of God. And first question for the class, what do you understand holiness to be? Or how would you define holy or holiness? What does it mean? (laughs) Margaret says she's been thinking about that all week. (laughs) There are basically two definitions, and one I can probably give pretty well, and the other one I'm a little iffy on still. Um, And that is, you know, there there are things here on earth that are made holy, um, and then God is holy. And there's, there's a distinct difference. You know, that which is on earth that's made holy is made holy by his presence. But what is it? What is holy? Set apart. Set apart. Okay, that is a common definition. I've, I've heard it my whole life. We'll, we'll explore that as we go through the lesson. Any other definitions? I'd say being in harmony with the law of love. Being in harmony with the law of love. I, I'm, I'm resonating with that a little more. Uh, yes. Um, Ellen White says wholeness to God, and I like that. Wholeness to God. Okay, I like that too. Other other comments? Let's look at uh, Sabbath's lesson and the paragraphs 3 through 5 beginning this week. This week's lesson focuses on one aspect of God's nature that's foundational in Scripture, God's holiness. God is love, yes. And yes, God bids us call him Father. And yes, God is patient, forgiving, and caring. But... According to Scripture, fundamental to our understanding of God is His holiness. Both in the Old Testament and New Testament, God's holiness undergirds His revelation of Himself. This theme appears all through the Scripture in one way or another. What, though, does it mean to say God is holy? How does the Bible depict His holiness? And when I read that, it, it... But a question in my mind that maybe they were trying to separate God's love from his holiness. Did, did I, did you hear it that way when? Yes. Yeah, okay, because I want to make sure I wasn't mishearing it. Or to say that it's different. <clears throat> or say it's different. That's what I mean, somehow separate and distinct. And I got to thinking about that. What would it be if it's not his character of love? What would his holiness be? And, and, any ideas? So his holiness is his power? If it wasn't connected with his love, who cares? Hmm. I don't think you could have holiness apart from God. I mean, I'm only going down the trail that I, I hear them suggesting here, and it's actually a couple times in the lesson they make the same point. God's holiness, God, uh, the scripture's God's holiness. God is love, yes, and God bids us call him Father, and yes, God is patient, forgiving, caring, but according to scripture, fundamental to our understanding is God's holiness. And it just seems to suggest there's a, something different about his holiness than his character of love. And I'm wondering what it is. Well, things that popped into my mind was, what about purity? Well, as soon as I thought purity, I thought, well, what's the standard which determines whether something is spiritually pure or not? Isn't it God's character of love? Okay, so that doesn't work. What about righteousness? I thought, oh, holiness is righteousness. And I thought, well, what is, what is it that determines whether something is righteous or not? Isn't it harmony with God's character of love? <laughs> I mean, I just kept coming back to the standard that we measure it by. Isn't it God's 
character of love. Or then the set apart. Well, set apart, holiness is set apart. Set apart from what? Worldliness or sinfulness, right? Toward what? God's character of love. (laughs) So we're back to God's character of love again. I couldn't actually come up with a definition of holiness that was separate or different from God's character of love. It It all defined there to me. I don't know. What do you think? It looks like they're using holiness as absoluteness. Absolute power, absolute bigness, absolute greatness, absolute overpower, you know, overwhelming attributes, etc. Isn't God's love incredible? Yeah, I mean, this is how I'm seeing it. Um, as uh, I don't have the quote with me, but George MacDonald said, what is it that makes God God? Is it power? No, because power uh, separate from his character of love would, would, would be only fear. We would only have fear of an all-powerful being who didn't have a character that God has. And it wouldn't be worth our worship, is what George MacDonald said. So I don't think power alone is what, was what makes God holy. I think it's what makes him holy is his character. And let's see if we can pull this thread out as we go through this week and see if, in fact, we flesh it out further. I saw another hand somewhere. Yes. It helps me to understand what holiness is if I understand and consider what unholiness means. And what's unholiness? Unholiness is something that's very undesirable. Yes, Russell. Yeah, the, the lesson, you know, saying that you know, God is um, love, but you know, that's like saying God is merciful, but He's also just. Trying to trying to separate those two from a character of love. They're, they're, they're both mercy and justice are are perfect reflections of a God of love. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think it's an expression. I think that the definition, the touchstone, the, the standard upon which we measure holiness or non-holiness, isn't it God's character? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I don't see any other thing we can put there. All right, what do you, what do you have, reaction when you think about holy now and holiness, what reaction do you have to the following scriptures? Leviticus 19.2. Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So the entire, you know, be holy. Or uh, Matthew 5.48, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Or Hebrews 12.10, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. He disciplines us that we may share in his holiness. Or 1 Peter 1.15, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. How do you react to this injunction, this directive, this instruction, this calling for you to be holy? It's all within our power to be that way through him. And it's by reflecting on God's character and studying his character and knowing God that we become like him. And that's what he's telling us. We all have this power through him to be like him. And so if we have this power through him to be like him, then... That definition of set apart or separateness earlier. What happens to our relationship with God as we become like Him? Are we set apart from Him or are we united to Him? And what's another word for that? Atonement. Atonement. Yeah. So atonement isn't about appeasement or payment. It's about bringing us back into unity with Him so that we are holy like He is holy. And there's a text in Romans, Romans 8 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. We were 
predetermined, God predetermined a plan to conform us to be like Christ, to be Christ-like. Well, to be Christ-like would be holy. Yeah, okay. All right, let's look at Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. It says, even a superficial study of church history makes it clear that it's all too easy to develop ideas about God and then to worship these ideas instead of God himself, the uh, the God revealed in the Bible. As the skeptic Voltaire quipped, God made man in his image and man has returned the compliment. We may not even realize that we have an incomplete or even false understanding of God. I thought this was very well said. Very well said, don't you think? Yes, yeah, so the question, rather than pointing our fingers at all those people who have the wrong picture of God, the question is, what about us? How can we protect ourselves from, because frankly, I really don't know very many people who believe a falsehood who believe they're believing a falsehood. The people who I know who I believe are believing a falsehood, they believe they're believing the truth. So we would be, we all believe we're believing the truth. How can we protect ourselves from falling into the camp of believing a falsehood while we're, we think we're believing the truth? How can we protect ourselves from that? Did you follow my question? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, that was kind of around the rosy, but <laughs> how can we protect ourselves from, from this position of worshiping a God that we've made in our mind that's not the true God? How can we, how can we have confidence that we are on the right track? Yes. One thought I have is that we just have to have that kind of humility in our heart where we actually just bring this before God and and even just tell him, you know, that I know I'm so prone to think that I'm right and I need you to tell me the truth (laughs) to keep that openness. Which God are we bringing it before? Those people who are worshiping another view of God, they may very humbly be bringing their question and heartache before that God. True. I mean, I can think of lots of people I know in different faith groups, Christian and non-Christian, who will present themselves in a very humble way. I know uh, there's an entire world religion. They pray five times a day, humbly, on their knees, bowing in a certain direction. Because, and they're asking God to lead them. We might suggest that maybe they don't quite understand God the way we do, but they believe they do have the right view of God. Yes? I think we need to be always open to hearing um, even opinions that, that are different than our own, you know, in investigating it, comparing it, um, and you know, weighing the evidence. I love this. This is so good. We need to keep an open mind to hear opinions that d- disagree with our own and then be able to weigh the evidences and look for evidence, facts, truths that would contradict something we're ble- believing. In other words, have a heart that loves truth and is willing to follow a new unfolding of truth as we understand it. So what name of our class, Come and Reason, Isaiah 118, Come, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. It's as we reason these things out. So one way is we have to be reasonable. We have to think. If we, if we have an approach to our relation with God that says, well, we don't ask questions, we don't think, we just believe, we just have faith, we, we, you know, it's, it, 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 this type of approach, that sets us up for holding to something uh, that's maybe not true. And out of Education, page 169, it says, God never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. His existence, his character, the truthfulness of his word are all established by testimony that appeals to our reason. And this testimony is abundant. So first thing I would like to suggest how we protect ourselves is we're reasonable and we think and we base our understanding on the evidences as we understand them. So I'll hand over here. 
Well, the Bible tells us that there's a rather large group that maketh and believeth a lie. Mm-hmm. And so I believe, uh, you know, when you check it out, broad is that road, you know, and many there be that find that way. And so I think that we have a problem with our comfort zone. And so if something there is new and startling and it's the truth, but it rocks our comfort zone, then in our minds we kind of make up a falsehood that we attach to and agree with and then promulgate it. No, you're exactly right. And then we have a following that follows after because uh, there's a whole bunch of people to get on that road. And, and so at the very end of time, it says that, it's that the whole world is on that train. And so you're going the wrong way. And so they believe the lie. And so I, I think we need to go back to this uh, idea that you mentioned, which was before, that we have to have everything established upon what? Not a feeling, but truth. That's right. I think we can back up by saying it is written. And I think that's why we have such uh, diversity among us today is because we all have a comfort zone and somebody's rocking it constantly, it seems like. And so our goal is to maybe outline a couple of standards or principles here this morning that we can use to prevent us from falling off one of those trails. One was we start with a mind that's willing to look at evidence, willing to think, willing to reason. We don't turn our brain off at the church door. If you do that, you can believe anything. So that's, that's the first principle. But other principle, Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by, from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. And so um, out of uh, Education, page 190, it says, the Bible is its own expos- expositor. Scripture is to be compared with Scripture. The student should learn to view the word as a whole, seeing the relation to its parts. He should gain a knowledge of its grand central theme, of God's original purpose for the world, of the rise of the great controversy in the work of redemption. He should understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy. And so as we begin to reason, we want to reason also by including God's word in the process, but understanding the meaning of the word in the context of a controversy that extends uh, back before even this planet was made. And in that context, it gives focus and clarity to what we understand when we reason out the word. Yes, Dean. Your God also has to be reasonable. You can't just say that, uh, oh, let's come and reason with God, or God says come and reason unless he's reasonable and can be reasoned with. If he just says, just because I said it, you do it. There's no if, ands, or buts. I won't discuss it anymore. That's not the kind of God you want to be worshiping. Okay, so even the invitation implies something about God's character, that he opens us up to invite a dialogue, a discussion, and, and reasonableness. So it gives us an insight to God. And then what about Romans one twenty? I like this one because this one really brings another element that, uh, that I think is very important. It says, For the sense of the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what he has made so that men are without excuse. And what this verse is telling us is that we need to include science in nature. God made this universe. He made this planet. And his nature and qualities and principles can be understood. And so we can't, don't study scripture separate and isolated from science and nature. We include those things. And so this is out of Christian Education, page 66. In the study of science also, we are to obtain the knowledge of the creator. All true science is but an interpretation of the handwriting of God in the material world. Science brings from her research only fresh evidence of the wisdom and power of God. Rightly understood, both the book of nature and the written word make us acquainted with God by teaching us something of the wise and beneficent laws through which he works. We're going to come to that, the laws through which he works, understanding the laws, the laws that govern nature, not the rules, not not, not a Roman concept of imposition, 
But the construction protocols, the laws that govern nature, tell us something about God. Another quote from Education 130, rightly understood both the revelation of science and the experiences of the life are in harmony with the testimony of Scripture to the constant working of God. And so, if you've, we're, we're tracking this, to me I hear three threads. Three threads that must balance and harmonize and weave together for as we reason these things out. One is the thread of Scripture. One is the thread of science. And one is the thread of experience. And all three of those threads need to be brought to bear and we find harmony amongst all three as we begin weighing the evidences. When we begin separating those threads and we have theology based on Scripture separate from science... Or let's do the other one first. We have science separate from Scripture, and we study science separate from Scripture. What kind of ideas do we come up with? Evolution. Evolution. I mean, that's what we come up with, ultimately. A godless understanding of the universe, a humanistic understanding of the world. What happens when we study Scripture separate from science? Separates from the laws of nature. Those laws that life was built to operate upon that we talk about in here so much. We end up with an imperial Roman dictator. Or mythology. Or mythology. Well, that's actually what it ends up being. It ends up being Christian mythology. Christian mythology. And we end up with, with an idea of God as an imposer of, of law, an imposer of penalties, and this whole distortion of theology. Um, when I've had some meetings with some theologians in the recent past, I brought these quotes to bear, and I said, as we move forward and study together and try to uncover truth, we need to be sure that we harmonize, based on these principles, Scripture, Science, experience. And the theologians who were most opposed to what we do in our class were adamant that that cannot be. We can use Scripture and Scripture only. Science has no bearing. Experience has no bearing. It's only Scripture. It was a hard argument. Why would that be the case? Well, if you divorce Scripture away from the real world in which we live, away from the laws of nature, you can make Scripture say anything you want. If you just take the scripture by itself, this is why there's so many theologies out there. This is why stuff's all over the place, because people will take it, same things, and twist it and turn it any way they want. But when you have standards that are measurable, and we've talked about those in here, for instance, the law of liberty we've talked about in here, which is a measurable law upon which life is built, or the law of love we've talked about in here, or the law of worship, the principle of modeling. These are testable laws, and when you when you comport your belief system to the, the laws that you can test, then it's a boundary. You can't go outside those and still be in truth. But if you take those testable scientific laws away, then you can go anywhere, and you end up with Christian mythology. What do you think about this idea of, of, of a reasonable approach that we look at science, scripture, and experience all together, balancing the three? Yes. It's what you do whenever you come up with a conflict between your paradigm or your belief in any one sphere. You know, how do you reconcile your your understanding of the, of God's word with your experience, or how do you understand God's word with science, or vice versa? And haven't we? Go ahead. And you know, I don't know if it was this week's lesson or last week's lesson, but they made some comment about how it was necessary to understand. Christ's work on earth through the old lens of the Old Testament. Actually, we're about to, this next sentence right now. Let's just look at it. No, no, you brought it up, so let's look at it. It's the opposite. 
Well, let's look at it. You know, you, you need to look at the opposite view. You know, you need to start out with the, the true, the most complete explanation, and then view everything else through that lens. Exactly right. Exactly right. So fourth paragraph, it says, uh, at the same time, the New Testament is filled with references after, uh, reference after reference to the Old Testament. In fact, the whole theology of the New Testament is, is intricately linked to the Old. How does one, for instance, make sense of the sacrifice of Jesus apart from the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament? This is what he was saying. Now, just think this through. Be reasonable. Let's, let's weigh out. Okay, we've got an idea presented to us that we need to understand the Old Testament in order to make sense of what Christ has done for us. But wait, haven't you always heard that the Old Testament system is a shadow, a, a, a shadow of the, of the real, and Christ was the reality that fulfilled this shadowy, typical type enactment symbolic stuff? Have you always heard that? Well, then think this through. What sense would it make for you to stand out on a sunny day and for us to ignore you and study your shadow and after we've drawn conclusions from studying your shadow, we force our opinions of you to conform to the conclusions we've drawn from your shadow. Wouldn't it make more sense to study you, and then when we look at the shadow, we will understand what we're seeing in the shadow? If you've ever done those shadow images and stuff, okay, you can make things appear in a shadow that when you look at the reality, well, okay, it's completely different. True? Okay, well, they're suggesting here that we study the shadow, the old symbolic system, and then we pigeonhole Jesus to force into our understandings of the shadow. Why do they do that? I'm going to suggest to you because symbols, shadowy stuff, can be morphed and interpreted lots of different ways. The reality is much more clear-cut, and it's harder to twist it. This is my suggestion. And so... This is out of Christ Object Lessons, page 133. One of the founders of our church said the following, The significance of the Jewish economy is not yet fully comprehended. Now this should be a great, a great a wide awakening for many people within the Adventist church. Because many people in the Adventist church will read writings written by founders of our church a hundred years ago that describe certain interpretations of the Old Testament sanctuary system. For instance, a chapter called the Holy of Holies in the, in the Great Controversy. This was written after that, and notice what it says. The significance of the Jew Jewish economy is complete and fully understand, and there's nothing new to learn. No, it says, is not yet fully comprehended. Truths vast and profound are shouted forth in its rites and symbols. The gospel is the key that unlocks its mysteries. Through a knowledge of the plan of redemption, its truths are open to the understanding far more than we do. It is our privilege to understand these wonderful themes. And so I, I see this position, taking the position of, wait, we need to understand Jesus first. Jesus, the embodiment of the good news, the embodiment of the gospel. Look at his reality, his life, what he achieved, what he accomplished. Understand what he did, and then we can look back into the shadow and understand what those symbols meant. But if we reverse it, well, I think we're in danger of completely mis misunderstanding what Christ came to do. What do you all think? Yes? What does the Jewish economy have to do with it? The Jewish economy, the sacrificial system, the shadow, the symbols. That's what it's talking about. Yeah. Monday's lesson asks us to read Genesis 2-3. You all know this verse. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And then the first paragraph says, that this text gives us our first understanding of holiness. It shows that... 
that something, in this case, time, is set apart from that which is around it. The seventh day itself is no different from any other 24-hour sunset-to-sunset period. What makes it different, holy, is that God declared it that way. He set it apart from the rest of the week. I'm going to tell you guys, well, first off, what do you all think of what I just read? Do you go amen or do you go, how sad? How sad? How sad? And let's break it down and, and, to, and to understand why this is a sad statement in the, in the lesson. Is the seventh day holy because God declared it holy? Or did God declare it holy because he had already made it, constructed it, built it to be holy? Do you understand the difference in the question? For instance, on days one through six, at the end of each day, God said, and it was good. He declared it was good. Did it become good when he declared it, or did he declare it because it already was good? So did the Sabbath become holy when he declared it holy, or was it already holy and that's why he declared it holy? Yes? I believe if we're a true seeker of truth, Mm -hmm. that we can study it backwards, and through the unction of the Holy Spirit, we'll still get the truth that we need for the time that we live. And so... uh, I believe no matter which way you come, you know, Sister Bride says that some people will come in through the health message, some will come in through the Sabbath, you know, they might come in backwards, but if they're a true seeker for truth, then the Holy Spirit will make sure you get what you need. But what I see the problem here is, is when people study something to prove their point, to prove their idea, or, or you know, what they feel is right, that's when we have... Holy Spirit can't come and lead us and guide us to all truth because we're hung up with our own thoughts and our own will. There's a lot of, a lot of wisdom in what you're saying. The question that, that I'm trying to ask, though, is does it make a difference on who God is? Remember, we, we started out about holiness here. We started out about who are we worshiping? Are we all worshiping the same God. Does it make a difference on who God is on how we understand the Sabbath? If we say that the Sabbath, as the lesson says, there is no difference between the seventh day and the other six days, except God chose to declare it different. If we say that, then what are we saying? God is arbitrary. And it can be changed by a declaration from on high. God declares it holy, well, he can move the holiness. I've actually seen Adventist literature that argue, we don't worship on Sunday because nowhere in the sacred writings do we find that God moved the holiness from Sabbath to Sunday. But if we found that God had made Sunday holy and moved sanctity, then we would worship on a different day. I mean, you've heard this argument, right? The implication of that argument is it's an arbitrary holiness. There's nothing inherently blessed about the Sabbath. The Sabbath only is blessed because God arbitrarily declared it to be so. Uh, In uh, Heavenly Places, page 8, it says, From the beginning it has been Satan's studied plan to cause men to forget God, that he might secure them to himself. Therefore he has sought to misrepresent the character of God, to lead men to cherish false conceptions of him, The creator has been presented in their minds as clothed with the attributes of the prince of evil himself as arbitrary, severe, and unforgiving, that he might be feared, shunned, and even hated by men. Heavenly Places, page 8. So I'm suggesting to you that if we put the Sabbath forward as an arbitrary test of obedience, there's no difference between it and the other days other than God simply decided with the arbitrary use of his power to say this day, I declare, this is a holy day. Declared by me, 
Now you must worship on this day and keep it holy. Then we've just sustained Satan's argument that God is arbitrary. He uses his power arbitrarily. But isn't it only holy because he made it holy? Ah, okay. Was Adam and Eve on day six, breathing the nostrils of breath of life, rib taken from Adam's side, Eve is brought into existence, were they made holy? Were they made holy? Well, this is out of Adventist Home, page 26. Adam was surrounded with everything his heart could wish. Every want was supplied. There was no sin, no sign of decay in the glorious Eden. Angels of God conversed freely and lovingly with the holy pair. Were they holy? Were they made holy? Constructed, built by God as holy? Yes, they were. Okay, so I'm suggesting to you that the Sabbath was constructed, built, holy. How? How was the Sabbath built holy? And thus, as in day one through six, when God declares it as good, he declared it as good because it was good. And he declares it as holy because it is holy. Why is it holy now? The question. And this is a huge distinction. And it goes right to how you understand God. There is this view that comes down through that lens of Roman imperialism. A Roman emperor just declares things to be, and it is. God makes them that way, builds them that way, constructs them that way, and that's why they are. There's a difference. So, when was the Sabbath created? Just Michael. an aside. Perhaps some of you have heard that there's this small little island country out in the South Pacific just lately that um, had been told the country had decided to move the international dateline over yeah. one day. And so, now they got a Sabbath problem. Are they going to go to church on Sunday? They have decided to go, now to go to church on still the seventh day of the week. But now the seventh day is Sunday. And so now there are, everybody's going to church on Sunday, and everybody else who was going to church on Sunday is continuing going to church on Sunday. So is this a way we could fool the whole world and be Sabbath keepers? We'll just change the date line? And everybody will go on Sunday and it's really the Sabbath? I love this talking about it as being made holy. It's God wanted an opportunity for the entire universe to reflect because I think creation is a response to the lies that Satan perpetrated. In other words, as to who his character was, that he was arbitrary, that he wouldn't share his creative power, that he, that he wasn't interested. And he's answering that by demonstration, what he's doing. And I think it's a moment for the universe to pause and reflect on his character of love and that he is not what Satan has made him out to be. Well, well said. So, so when was the Sabbath created? When? In time was the seven history of the universe. When was it created? At the end of creation week of planet Earth. Was that the creation of the universe? No. No. Job uh, 38 tells us that the sons of God sang for joy when the Earth was created. The rest of the intelligent beings in the universe were already there. What was happening in the rest of the universe when this world was created? There was a war going on. We talked about this before. What kind of war? Ideas. You know, the, 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 the revelation text, there was war in heaven, is polemo, from which we get polemic. It was a war of words, a, po- a political war, a war of ideas, centering on what? We have Second Corinthians, we wage war and demolish everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So Satan started lying and misrepresenting God in heaven. The angelic hosts were confused. 
God doesn't just simply declare his truth. He gives, gives evidence of his nature and character. And so earth is created where God shares creative power with created beings that we can bring beings in our image uh, into existence. And he shares dominion. They had government, government to rule. They could rule this planet. And then after giving this evidence, God says, universe, you've, you've heard the allegations. You've seen the evidence we provided. Now, universe, I rest. Remember, the Sabbath, God rested. I rest my case. Take 24 hours aside. Think for yourself. How was the Sabbath constructed in its context? It was built in the context of a war over God's trustworthiness, over the allegations of his arbitrary use of power, over the, thre- over the, the idea that God will force people in the line, mistreat them with, the, with abuse of authority. And instead, now we suddenly have a day where God says, I rest. Take 24 hours aside. Consider what's happened for yourself. And so we find that the Sabbath is built with the truth presented in love, leaving people free. And thus the Sabbath itself is invested with the very qualities and character of God himself. It was constructed or built holy. And therefore God says the Sabbath is holy. It has the qualities of my nature, truth, love, freedom, embodied in the, in the building of the Sabbath. Now, think this through as evidence. If Satan was right... I'm talking about evidence to convince your mind. If Satan is right and God is an arbitrary abuser of power, he forces people to do it his way under threat, would we have a Sabbath in existence today? He wouldn't have made the Sabbath. He would say, get in line or else. The fact that the Sabbath exists, its weekly existence proves to us as evidence who God is. Further, on day one through six, if we're watching, if we're an observer in the universe, what are we learning about God on day one through six? He's very powerful. So if we take a few grams of matter and turn that matter into energy, we call that a nuclear explosion, and it's quite powerful. How much power did it take to make this planet, the sun, the solar system? This is an incredible exercise of power. We're learning on day one through six that God has power. What do we learn on day seven? The character of the one who wields the power, that he doesn't use coercive pressure or force, presents truth in love, and leaves people free. The Sabbath itself is built upon the principles of God's character. Therefore, it is holy. This is my suggestion to you. He made it holy, as he made Adam and Eve holy. Did they stay holy? No, they didn't. But we are instructed to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, because it's made holy. How do we keep the Sabbath day holy? What is it that makes the Sabbath day holy? See, there's two ways to look at this. You can look through the lens of God's creative nature and principles, the way he designs things, the way he builds things, and he built the Sabbath with certain principles. You can look at it through the imperial Roman lens of God declares and and arbitrarily makes things the way he wants them, and and there's really no reason behind it other than he has the authority to make it happen. If you look at the Sabbath through this lens, God said this day is holy. It's no different than any of the other six days. And this is a test of your obedience to see who you're going to be loyal to. And if you're not loyal, well then, guess what? Zap. Lightning from heaven. So one way we keep the Sabbath holy, if we're looking at this, well, we get that list of rules. All those things you can't do and you're supposed to do. Can't do this, can't do that, can't do the other thing. And we'll multiply those rules. Was there 490, something like that, in the Jewish system? 613. 
613, Sabbath-keeping rules that you can and can't do on Sabbath. We, we'll multiply because we're going to keep that day holy because it's arbitrary. There's no reason for it. It's all behavioral-based. On the other hand, if we understand it is constructed on the principles of God's character, truth presented in love, leaving people free, how do you keep that day holy? How do you keep that day holy? That is illustrated in Christ's miracle in which the Jew, the rabbis accused him of breaking the Sabbath by healing the person. And yet he said, I am working and my father is working all day long. Exactly. And you do circumcision on that day, you do other things on that day to... And so how we keep it holy is by experiencing what we talked about earlier. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We live the truth in love and leave people free. We become holy priesthood unto God. This is how we keep it holy, by being holy. We have to be recreated in holiness, or we can't keep the Sabbath holy, can we? So it's not behavior-based, it's condition, being made again in Christ's image, as the Sabbath was made holy. We are made holy. And this is how we keep it. And it's not just one day a week we're keeping holy. We keep seven days a week holy because we live holy lives. And then when it comes down in the end and what these days are symbolic of, it comes down at the end, there's two systems. There's a system no one can buy or sell, say him who has the mark of the beast, coercive, coercive authoritative pressure, do it or else, threat. And there's a system, greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They practice another principle, truth, love, leaving people free. So we, we either coerce people, pressure them with threat of death, or we will give our lives that other people can live. This is where it's going to come down. And you can go through all the other scenarios you want, but when it gets to the rubber on the road, it's going to be down. What's your heart? Are you willing to coerce and threaten other people to do it your way? Or are you going to leave them free and give your life to protect them? That's the deal. This is holy. This is Sabbath. This is not. This is beast over here. Second par- uh, Next few paragraphs, it says, um, the Hebrew word for sanctified means to make holy or to declare holy. Holiness then implies that something is special about whatever is holy, something that, is, that sets it apart from what isn't holy. To some degree, then, this idea should help us understand the holiness of God. God is set apart from anything else in creation. He is trans- transcendentally separate, far above and beyond anything that we can truly grasp. To be holy is to be other, to be different in a special way, as with the seventh-day Sabbath. I'm just going to run through this very, very quickly. It does say in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God lives in unapproachable light. God lives in unapproachable light. Why? Is this photons, unapproachable photons? Or is this unapproachable knowledge and truth and love? Why is it unapproachable? Thank you. Dean says because he is infinite and we are finite. Imagine a finite mind trying to assimilate infinity. You can't do it. It's unapproachable to a finite mind. This is why God lives on a finite. Not because he's selfish, not because he's hoarding, not because he's restrictive, but because we're limited. We are limited. We're not infinite. Therefore, therefore, because God is love, we can't approach him. What did he do? A, a member of infinity, a member of divinity, left infinity and came out to approach us so that he could interface as close as possible with his creation. That was Jesus, who's always been doing that. So, even when Jesus came and dwelt with his creation, 
when he was not far off, when he was not disconnected, when he was not separated. In fact, he was connected so closely, he was connected by an umbilical cord. That's how closely connected he was. So he wasn't separated. He was united. Was he still holy? Hmm. Think through this definition of holiness. What do we understand it to be? It's not physical separation. It's a separation of motive, separation of character, a separation of principle, a separation of orientation of the heart. Christ was holy because he remained loving to God and loving to others, even while he was connected to those of us who are selfish. In heaven, before the rebellion, were the angels holy? Before the rebellion, were they holy? Yeah. Holiness is not, this is uh, Faith I Live by, page 140. Holiness is not rapture. It is an entire surrender of the will to God. It is relying on God with unquestioning confidence and resting in his love. No one can be omnipotent, but all can cleanse themselves from filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. But unless all selfishness is put away, unless all self is crucified, we can never be holy as God is holy. God requires moral perfection in all. Christ took upon him our, upon him our human, human nature and lived our life to show us what we may be like in him. Excuse me, that we may be like him. We ought to be holy even as God is holy. Does that sound kind of daunting to you? When we trust God completely, because holiness is trusting God, it said. Think it through. This shouldn't be daunting. When we trust God completely, when you surrender your heart to him in trust, what happens? Something happens when you do that. There's a chain of consequences like tipping dominoes that will start happening. If you really open your heart and trust to God, what happens? Does the Holy Spirit come in? Does the Holy Spirit begin doing something inside you that you can't do for yourself? Is there a change of motive, a change of desire, an enlightenment, a wisdom, a discernment? Is there a transforming process happening in you that you're not doing? It's happening because you've surrendered your heart to Christ. So uh, if, you're, if you're somewhat afraid of this idea that I must be holy, listen to this. This is um, out of, what's the abbreviation for AG, the book AG? Anybody remember? Grace. Amazing Grace, thank you. Amazing Grace, page 120. No man receives holiness as a birthright or as a gift from any other human being. Holiness is the gift of God through Christ. Those who receive the Savior become sons of God. They are spiritual children, born again, renewed in righteousness and true holiness. Their minds are changed. What's changed? Their minds are changed. With clear vision, they behold eternal realities. They are adopted into God's family and they become conformed to his likeness, changed by his spirit from glory to glory from cherishing, now here's where it gets really down to rubber on the road again, from cherishing supreme love for self, they come to cherish supreme love for God and for Christ. Accepting Christ as personal Savior and following his example of self-denial, this is the secret of holiness. It's that heart change from we're going to have the law of the world, the law of survival of the fittest, the law of me first, fear, selfishness as we practice, or do we come to the point we trust God enough, we can say, hey, I'm not afraid of what's going to happen to me when he's in control. I surrender my heart to him. I'm going to love him more than I love myself. That's the secret of holiness. 
Well, it goes right back to God's character of love, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to jump to Friday's lesson. We'll probably not get off of Friday's lesson. I want to read these first two paragraphs, and I want you to tell me what message you're hearing, because these were selected, uh, obviously, for a reason. And I want you to tell me what message that you take away from this, this two paragraphs. This is out of Desire of Ages, page 158. As Christ stands before the trafficking crowd in the temple, the confusion is hus- hushed. The sound of traffic and bargaining has ceased. The silence becomes painful. A sense of awe overpowers the assembly. It is as, as if they were arraigned before the tribunal of God to answer for their deeds. Looking upon Christ, they behold divinity flash through the garb of humanity. The majesty of heaven stands as the judge will stand at the last day with the same power to read the soul. His eye sweeps over the multitude, taking in every individual. His form seems to rise above them in commanding dignity, and a divine light illuminates his countenance. He speaks and his clear ringing voice, the same that upon Mount Sinai proclaimed the law that priests and rulers are transgressing, is heard echoing through the arches of the temple. Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Slowly descending the saps and raising the scourge of cord gathered up on entering the enclosure, he bids the bargaining company depart from the precincts of the temple. With a zeal and severity he has never before manifested, he overthrows the table of the money changers. None presume to question his authority. Jesus does not smite them with the whip of cords, but in his hand that simple scourge seems terrible as a flaming sword. Officers of the temple, speculating priests, brokers and cattle traders with their sheep and auction rush from the place with, their th- with one thought of escaping from the condemnation of his presence. What do you hear? is the message that we want to take from this. Just, just this alone, these two paragraphs, if this is what you got, what, what, are, you, what are you taking away? What? That's not fair because I like this passage. I've read on. Yeah, yeah. No, we're, we're going to read on in a minute. I, don't want, to, I don't, don't want you to read on yet, Dennis. Okay? Because, uh, the, because these paragraphs were selected. And what, what message do they, do they paint? Alone, isolated. And do you notice how they've done this with Jesus? They want you to see if Jesus is going to do this, well, then you have really no hope when comes the judgment because, you know, he's really going to hose you then. Did, did, did it come across as comforting to you? <laughs> or scary? Yeah, and, and I wanted to pull this out and have you look at it because I think that's exactly the message that they intended. First thing I want you to know, notice, it says the cord seems terrible as a flaming sword. To whom? To the clergyman and those in charge. If you do read around the scripture, like in Matthew chapter 21, verses 14 through 16, you'll discover that while the money changers and the priests and the cattle traders were all terrified and running from the place, the children did not run away. And the sick and the lame came to him. So I'd like to see on church Sabbath morning, somebody get up with a whip, crack that whip with intense judgmental attitude, throwing over the communion table and not scare the children. Think anybody could do that? You see... When you originally read this, do you get the idea in your mind he did it in such a way that the children did not get scared? Can you even conceptualize that? 
But they didn't. If you read the scripture, the children stayed and so did the sick. So something different than what we think about when we think about somebody raising a whip and rolling over tables and threatening people is going on because kids are the first to get scared in a situation like that, aren't they? Yes, but they weren't scared. So who was scared were the guilty. The guilty were scared. So let's keep reading now. I'm going to keep reading on the same page of the same book. We're just going to skip one paragraph because it's a transition paragraph. But same page of the same book. And I want you to keep in mind now what we just read. He stands as the judge will stand on that day. Okay? What we just read. Keep all those ideas in mind as we continue to read now. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was announcing his mission as the Messiah and entering upon his work. That temple, erected for the abode of the divine presence, was designed to be an object lesson for Israel and for the world. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being from the bright and holy seraph to man should be a temple for the indwelling of the creator. Because of sin, humanity ceased to be the temple for God. Darkened and defiled by evil, the heart of man no longer revealed the glory of the divine one. But by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. God dwells in humanity. And through saving grace, the heart of man becomes again his temple. God designed that the temple at Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. Do you, whenever you hear the sanctuary message, whenever you read things about the heavenly sanctuary, are you thinking about the human soul? The high destiny open to every soul. But the Jews had not understood the significance of the building they regarded with so much pride. Have we as Adventists understood the significance of the temple and the temple services and meanings? They did not yet yield themselves as holy temples for the divine spirit. The court of the temple at Jerusalem filled with the tumult of unholy traffic represented all too truly the temple of the heart, defiled by the presence of sensual passion and unholy thoughts. In cleansing the temple from the world's buyers and sellers, Jesus announced his mission to cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin. What's he judging? Think this through with those judgmental passages. He's looking, he's got a scourge, he's driving something out. What? He's driving sin and wickedness out of our hearts, guys. That's what he's doing. From the defilement of sin, from the earthly desires, the selfish lusts, the evil habits that corrupt the soul. The Lord whom you seek, now quoting out of Malachi, the the Lord whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord. But who may abide the day of his coming? Who will stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire, a launderer's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the Levites. Who are the Levites? The priests. Know ye not that ye are a royal nation, a holy priesthood? Yes, and purge them like silver and gold. Next, last paragraph. No man, no man can of himself cast out the evil throng that have taken possession of the heart. Only Christ can cleanse the soul temple. But he will not force an entrance. He comes not into the heart as to the temple of old, but he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. He will, not, he will come not for one day merely, for he says, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and they shall be my people. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. What gets cast into the sea? Our sins, our, our, our corruptness. 
His presence will cleanse and sanctify the soul so that it may be a holy temple to the Lord, a habitation through the Spirit. What do you hear now? Do you hear something different? This is all one thread of thought. This man standing at the temple as the judge at the end of time. To do what? To cleanse from sin. Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. We are to be glorifying Him as we trust Him and let Him cleanse our hearts, write His law of love back on this old temple, become a dwelling place for the Spirit. Russell, you had your hand up. Do you have the next paragraph? The the one right after that? No. Uh, May I? Sure. Overpowered with terror, the priests and rulers had fled from the temple court and from a searching glance that read their hearts. In their flight, they met others on their way into the temple and bade them to turn back, telling them what they had seen and heard. Christ looked upon the fleeing men with yearning pity for their fear and their ignorance of what constituted true worship. In this scene, he symbolized the dispersion of the whole Jewish nation for the wickedness and impenitence. I think this is a great metaphor for you know, the end of time. Christ is there to cleanse, yeah. to restore. They're running from him, and they're telling other people, don't go near him. Begging the rocks and trees. You know, not even that end of time. How about today? Yeah. In the church today? Right. Do people run from a message of truth and tell other people not to go? Yeah. And, and Christ looked at them with condemnation, hostility, and anger? With pity. With pity. And then, of course, at the end, you're exactly right, when he comes, every eye shall see him. Um, will Christ come with two faces, smiling at the righteous and frowning and at the wicked? Or has he got the same loving face? And, and yet, exactly what you said, they're going to run and, and ask for the rocks and trees to fall on them, to hide them from his face. Why? Because their hearts condemn them. Because their hearts condemn them. Because the condemnation from within. Do you have a hand up, Wendell? Christ is just like God. Christ is God. That's exactly right. Okay. And so, too many times we portray him as being something different than God. In, in Tuesday's lesson, it ends with, even these men were faithful, Godful, righteous, were prophets even. Their reactions to the presence of God were fear, trembling, and worship. No doubt that's because, among other things, they understood their own unworthiness and sinfulness in contrast to the holiness of God. In their own way, these passages hint at the need of a Savior, a substitute, someone to bridge the gap between a holy God and fall, fallen sinful creatures like ourselves. Thanks to the Lord, we have that bridge in Jesus. That's true. Thanks we have that bridge, but he is God. Yeah, I'm going to put a pause button. Everybody remember that passage you just read? I've got to make one closing point, and then we're going to come to your point. Okay? Okay? And the point for that we read about this presentation in Friday's lesson about, that made it appear as if Jesus was judgmental, there, when you come through this lens of that Roman-imposed law system, it, it consistently makes God against us. If you remember last week, Genesis, we read, we read in, in the lesson, it says that how God was against the serpent and God was against Adam and God was against his judgments, his judgments against the serpent, his judgments against Adam, his judgments against Eve. And we saw that none of those were judgments against them. They're all interventions for them. And we just read here how it made it sound like Jesus was against them 
But in reality, what he was doing, he was diagnosing their condition and aggressively trying to purge the heart and mind. He's for them. And we have to remember Romans 8, if God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his son, but graciously gave him up. How will we not with him give us all things? Okay, God is always for us. And when we see it through the lens of, of his design protocols that were breached, then we see the creator always intervening to heal, restore, and put us back in harmony with his nature. And so I wanted to make that distinction that one view will consistently present God as against us. And sometimes Jesus then will be for us and working on the Father because the Father's against us, Jesus for us. And that's that disparity you were mentioning. But then this quote that, that Wendell just wrote, read about um, at the end of Tuesday's lesson about they, they fell down with fear and trembling because they, they were aware of their own wickedness. I, uh, did you read that and go, amen? Or did you read that and go, wait a minute? Wait a minute. Hold on. There's some other thoughts. Hopefully, when you read these things, your computer has lots of data from Scripture and other places that will immediately fly in there to, to give you evidence. Like, for instance, in Revelation, when the 24 elders and the Lamb comes, and these 24 elders do what? Fall on their faces before Him and go, holy, 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 because they're aware of their wickedness and sin, right? Well, wait a minute. No, they're not wicked and sinful anymore. They've been renewed. The angels will, will throw, cast their crown and, and fall down. We read about it, holy, 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 because they're aware of their wickedness and sin, right? No. In fact, Russell was alluding to it a moment ago, when Christ comes, those who retain wickedness and sin, do they fall down and say, holy, 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 or are they running away begging for rocks and trees to fall on them? So those who are aware of wickedness and sin are not falling down and saying, holy, holy, holy. They're running away. I'm suggesting to you that they fall down saying, holy, 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 oh, amazing. And they might say, what a wretched man am I? Not because of this sinful aspect of it, because of the amazement of how awesome God is. They're in awe. They're in wonder. It's incredible. It's, I've never conceived of such amazement in my life. It's beyond any imagining. And when you get that awareness, it just humbles you. It's not because you're going like, oh, I'm this hard, wretched thing. That, that's my thought on that as I read that because it just seemed, it didn't seem consistent with all those other examples. Yeah. I think it's, in the lesson, they bring out the one story where, you know, Jesus reveals himself and, and does this miracle and Peter falls, you know, is depart from me. But the other end of it, when he knows Christ, he jumps out of the boat to go to it. Exactly. Yes, exactly. That's, that's how the change is made. Exactly. Well, I think it's well said. Well said. And so, when you think, when you heard the first two paragraphs that we read in Friday's lesson a moment ago, did you immediately think of what came next? Christ cleansing us from sin. And his anger is not at you ever. It's the anger that a doctor has a disease. He wants to cleanse our hearts from sin like a doctor wants to heal a patient from sickness. Did you have that instant because I'm suggesting that's how we should hear. The Lord is always for us. Always for us. Yes, I did not come to condemn, but to save. Exactly. God is not the source. See, this is the message of all eternity, the good news, that God is not like Satan alleges. God is not our enemy. God is not the source of suffering and death. Sin is the source of suffering and death, and God is working through all of his agencies for us to heal and to restore, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are truly holy. 
completely pure, loving, gracious, good, kind, giving, and on our side always. We pray that your spirit will come into our hearts and minds and get rid of the distorted concepts that we have been raised with that make us afraid of you. May we instead fear not being with you, not opening our hearts to you, not abiding and spending time with you, because when we do that, we know that the infection of fear and selfishness just grows stronger in our hearts. We invite you in now, and we, we ask that you will give us those hearts that love you and others more than self, and then additionally, give us skill and wisdom and ability to communicate this message to others that they can be set free as well. We pray in your holy name. Amen.